Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Argus. Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Earlier today, Europe's longest reigning living monarch, Queen Margrethe of Denmark, abdicated from the throne and her son succeeded her, with the news causing shock and surprise when it was first announced on New Year's Eve. So in tonight's show, we want to go back in time to the most famous royal abdication of all, when King Edward VIII stepped down from the throne in Britain to marry the woman he loved, Wallace Simpson. And we'll be debating what really happened, how it helped the Irish state remove the monarchy from its constitution and why the abdication was so controversial. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored the history of O'Connell Street in Dublin, found out about the building of the spire and the blowing up of Nelson's Pillar, and also discussed what the future might hold for this iconic and yet much maligned street. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. In December 1936, King Edward VIII abdicated after less than one year on the throne because of his determination to marry the woman he loved, Wallace Simpson, a twice-divorced American. As a result, the future of the monarchy in Britain was changed forever, as his brother became George VI and Princess Elizabeth became next in line to the throne. Edward became the Duke of Windsor and spent the rest of his life in exile, happily married to Wallace until his death in 1972. Edward had been a popular king, but the abdication and his pro-Nazi sympathies cast a considerable shadow over his reputation and legacy. And so in tonight's show, we want to investigate the constitutional crisis which led to the abdication and explore what really happened in 1936. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Adrian Phillips is an historian and author and a leading authority on the abdication. His books include The Groundbreaking, The King Who Had to Go, Edward VIII, Mrs Simpson and The Hidden Politics of the Abdication Crisis, and more recently published last year, The First Royal Media War, Edward VIII, The Abdication and the Press. Emily Harrigan is a journalist and writer and is the author of the best-selling series of novels about the glorious Guinness girls, including most recently An Invitation to the Kennedys. And the events of the abdication crisis and the characters of the King and Mrs. Simpson feature in her book The Other Guinness Girl, A Question of Honour, set between 1932 and 1936. Cahal Brennan is the co-presenter with John Dorney of the Irish History Story podcast and it can be found at the website irishhistoryshow.ie. Cahal is an expert on 20th century Irish history and he's written on the abdication crisis and Ireland for the Irish Story website. Well, you're all very welcome. And Adrian, I might begin with you and maybe a question about really the scale of this crisis, the scale of this controversy. Just how big was this in 1936? It was immense. Uh, First of all, the monarch was a revered, powerful figure in the country. Uh, Look at the difference in scale of the coronation ceremonies for 1937 for his brother and what we've just had last year. Uh, It was probably 10 times as great. Uh, And there was no doubt that there was an almost magical or religious aura uh, surrounding the monarch. And there was also uh, a much more specific aspect to the question, which kind of touches Ireland as well, which is we're still talking about the British Empire in those days. Um, And going back to the Treaty of London a few years before the abdication, it was the monarch who was actually the only official link between Britain and the dominions uh, and also the, the colonies. Uh, The one thing that held um, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and also formerly Ireland uh, to the empire was that they shared the king. And Adrian, one thing I hadn't really realised before now was that Edward hadn't actually been on the throne very long. And I think his coronation ceremony was still being planned. 
Oh, ab- absolutely. And his coronation date was fixed for May 1937. Uh, and in fact, his brother took over the arrangements lock, stock and barrel. Um, so uh, it, 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 he had a very short reign, less less than a year. And you've kind of described him as the first celebrity monarch. He certainly seemed to have captured the mood of the time in the 1930s. Oh, absolutely. I and mean, he was a very easy sell. He was young, good-looking, dynamic, a sportsman, a bachelor, which in those days gave him a very discreet, gentle sex appeal. Uh, he was very, very modern, very open to contact. Um, and also, it, looking at the media side, uh, newspapers were now universal in Britain. Cinema newsreels were starting to become a real force in people's consciousness. And lastly, uh, from the point of view of his father, George V, he was the ideal person to serve as the ambassador uh, for the British monarchy through the dominions and elsewhere. Those days, it was well before easy jet travel. So having a son who could spare the time, he could be put on a boat and sent off to the far corners of the empire. And I wonder, Adrian, where do your sympathies lie in this story? Is it with the king who wants to marry for love, even though it's going against all of these conventions and rules? Or is it with Stanley Baldwin, the prime minister, who's trying to defend these traditional values? Is it with Wallace Simpson, who's the woman caught up in it? Is it with, you know, the brother, the Duke of York, who is forced to take to the throne and uh, despite not... Well, I suppose feeling that, you know, it's a it's an obligation that's now been a, a new responsibility put on him. Like, where do you where are your sympathies and where do you think the blame lies? Uh, certainly a lot of sympathy, a lot of respect for George the Sixth, uh, who was uh, a chap who felt he really wasn't up to the job, possibly even of being a prince. Yet when the moment came, he saw that it was his duty, and that is a quite important word in the whole story, to become the king and assume the, um, the mantle of royalty. Uh, and he conducted it very, very well, particularly through the Second World War. It imposed stresses on him that probably shortened his life. Uh, and in fact, uh, his, his widow, the Queen Mother, referred to Wall- uh, well, the Duchess of Windsor, she was then, as the woman who killed my husband. Um, so uh, probably unconditional respect for um, George VI, the Duke of York, as he was then. Um, Stanley Baldwin is the in- interesting figure. He, sa- he was an extremely able politician, uh, and certainly he managed the abdication as well as anybody could have done. There is still a question mark as to how hard he tried to keep Edward VIII on the throne. Um, and it was a bit like um, the Hippocratic Oath for a doctor. I don't think he strived officiously in the phrase uh, to keep Edward as king. Uh, he certainly made absolutely sure that the government could not be criticised in any way, which you could express as saying he gave uh, Edward every inch of rope that he needed to hang himself. Um, and there is there is good sign that Baldwin thought that he, he, Edward, wasn't really fit for the job and was not sorry to see him go. And Winston Churchill is a major figure in the story as well, because he's the biggest champion for King Edward. Absolutely. Uh, As Home Secretary, he had uh, organised his inauguration as Prince of Wales in uh, in 1911. Uh, He knew him reasonably well, but not particularly as a friend. Also, the great romantic notion of um, loyal to the king, which counted. But... I think there was a good degree of opportunism uh, in Churchill analysed when the crisis came along. He saw troubled waters, and I think he thought he could fish in them. He made a disastrous mistake. He was very, very severely punished for it. Um, he was just on the, the cusp of 
re-establishing himself as a serious figure, as a spokesman and a promoter for the rearmament of Britain to confront Nazi Germany, when he just destroyed his entire credibility and status, really in the space of about 72 hours. <laughs> Extraordinary. Emily, it really is a fascinating story and a fascinating cast of characters. Was it good fun researching this period for your books? God, yeah. I mean, in fact, when I wrote the third book, which is The Other Guinness Girl, I switched from the two previous books, which had followed um, the three sisters or the three daughters of Ernest Guinness. I swapped over to their cousin, Honor, largely because she was married to this American called Henry Chips Channon, who was immensely involved in the whole kind of build-up to and then the crisis itself, the abdication crisis. He positioned himself, he was the greatest social climber the world has ever seen. And when he moved over to England and married the very rich Honor Guinness, who was the daughter of Lord Ivy, uh, he inserted himself right into the heart of the British aristocracy. And from there, he carried on moving and gobbling and consolidating power. And one of the ways that he tried to do this was by establishing this friendship based on their common Americanness with Wallace Simpson. So he was a huge champion and a huge supporter and was completely convinced that this marriage was going to go through. I think one of the things that's kind of interesting about it is the level of delusion that everybody seemed to be operating under. And I think that the Prince of Wales, as he was at that point, I think he surrounded himself by these yes people. He surrounded himself by people with people like Chips Challen who said, of course you can do this. There's absolutely no problem whatsoever. You just need to be clever and discreet. Uh, neither of those things the prince was. And this can happen for you. So truly my, like the writing of that third book was hugely influenced by wanting to spend time with the characters of the King and Wallace Simpson, and do all of that research. I still think that it is, like, it's no accident that we're still fascinated by it. I mean, it's a long time ago now. It is, you know, it's kind of the origin story of the modern monarchy. And I always think that it's responsible for the Queen Elizabeth kind of that sense of duty. You know, the dominant theme of the modern British monarchy is duty, you know, and duty above all else. And I feel that that definitely stems from the fact that Edward VIII turned his back on duty. You know, he went the way of indulgence. Uh, he chose the modern route, is one interpretation of it, and he didn't espouse these old virtues and, you know, this kind of, you know, this code that, you know, that then they came back to. So there was like this very brief breach, which was the 10 or so months of his reign. And, you know, between the kind of episodes of, you know, stern duty and everything subsumed to that, which was his father, and then his brother picked that up again. So he's like this kind of, you know, this window, this anomaly in between the two things. And I think, I mean, I think that the character of Wallace is so interesting. I had read quite a bit about her before I started doing the formal research for this. And one of the things that struck me is how unwilling everybody was to believe in the love story. I mean, the, there was there was a great deal of kind of locustness based around the whole thing. I reckon that if Wallace had been 20 years younger, you know, super blonde, kind of Marilyn Monroe looking, everybody would have gone, obviously he's in love with her. Whereas the fact that Wallace was an older woman, she was in her early 40s, she was very elegant, but like not stunningly beautiful. And then, so no one seemed willing to believe that he loved her. There were all of these lurid stories during the round that he had some sexual dysfunction and that she had found some way of curing it, tips that she picked up in a Chinese brothel. I mean, really awful stuff, like really dreadful. And even after they got married, people still, there was all these rumours and stories of her having affairs. They, people kind of refused to believe that it was a genuine love story. Refused to believe it. And I think that's really awful. And even, I don't know, I mean, about 10 years ago, maybe I read a book positing the, the the theory that she was intersex. I mean, who cares? But the fact that somebody would write this book and get it published, like, it just speaks to the endless intrigue of how is it possible that the future king of England could fall in love with this woman? And, I mean, Wallace was really hated. Lots of people loved the king, 
Even when he had betrayed his sacred duty and chosen love over, you know, honour and family, they still really loved him. He was a very glamorous person. Um, he seems to have been quite childish, but he was definitely kind of engaging and charming and handsome. But everybody always hated Wallace. You know, I mean, that's the constant in the whole thing. And this, you know, this determination to believe that there was a trick at the heart of the relationship and that it wasn't true love, that always really intrigued me. And Emily, do you think uh, Edward really wanted to be king? That there seems to be a kind of a self-destructive element to the story as well. Hugely. And in a sense, I know, I believe that he didn't want to be king. I think that he absolutely didn't. There is uh, there's a story that, you know, Adrian probably knows a lot more about than I do, which is that he had contemplated in the late 20s, the king, George V, was very ill. Um, and at that stage, apparently, he, the Prince of Wales, as he was then, had contemplated stepping aside and not taking, you know, not like not putting himself forward for the top job. Um, He didn't do it. Then when George V did die, it was actually comparatively sudden. And, you know, there is this kind of sense that certainly the husband of honour Guinness, so Henry Chips Shannon in his, you know, never ending and incredibly salacious diaries, he writes about this saying that the king or, you know, the Prince of Wales, who then became Edward VIII, was kind of caught on the hop and that he really did not want to be king. He had loved being Prince of Wales, very Peter Pan. He really loved that position. It was the place that he shone and everyone adored him. And the idea of being the king, the loneliness, the sense of responsibility, he didn't want those things. And that in a sense, he was also a barrier. There were possibilities put forward. There is a school of thought that he could actually, if he had asked Wallace to go away for a year, Just put a moratorium on it for a year, be crowned, become the king, wait it out. You know, wait till the following August when, you know, Parliament's on holiday and it's silly season and marry her quietly that nobody would have done anything about it. But he was not prepared to do that. He himself was throwing up an awful lot of the kind of noise and the dust around this and that one of the reasons is that he actually, this was an excuse for him. It was a brilliant excuse. He got to look like a noble person, somebody who chose love over anything else. And he also got what he wanted, which was not to be king. But as you also said, he was also being badly advised and that was probably feeding into it as well. Carl, it's a fascinating story and it kind of, it's, it jars with our, our understanding today because when you look at the British monarchy now, Charles divorced, Camilla divorced, and yet they're king and queen and it shows how, how British society has moved on in the almost 90 years. Well, that's, that's absolutely true because there's a very stuffy attitude in Ireland, a very superior attitude, that people in Britain are very lax with their morals, and divorce is a recognised institution, and what's all the fuss about? And as you say there, with Charles and uh, Camilla, it just seems to have passed by with very little comment. But one of the things as well is that the King's role is also a supreme governor of the Church of England. So there's a lot of opposition within the Church of England uh, to this relationship with Wallace, particularly from the um, Archbishop of Canterbury. And one of the things that's very interesting as well when you're reading back about this period is the, the deference from the British media that this is being covered, the relationship uh, in the American press and a lot of the foreign press. But a lot of the people in Britain only become aware of it in the weeks leading up to the um, abdication. And even when the, the Dominion governments are informed about it, they're taken by surprise. Because it's not as we remember in the, the 80s and the 90s and the British tabloids covering Diana and Charles and all the issues to do with the monarchy in such detail and with such a lack of deference. The difference is really striking between that period and uh, now. And Carl, you wrote a brilliant piece for the Irish story about how the abdication crisis impacted on Ireland. And we'll talk about that in detail in the next section. But it's just interesting the way de Valera, as head of the Irish government, he features in the story because there is constant back and forth about how this is going to affect the relationship with the Dominions. And, and, uh, and so de Valera is being briefed on what's happening. Well, this is the interesting thing, like the old phrase, uh, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. That's mentioned many times 
people like Sean McEntee, the Minister for Finance, but mainly people like Joseph P. Walsh, who's the Secretary of the Department of External Affairs. Like he actually says, just as the British have used political divisions here for their political advantage, we are entitled and are bound to turn their present difficulty to our account. And this is really how the Irish side view it, that this is a great opportunity to pursue the constitutional avenues that Fianna Fáil have been pursuing since they were elected in 1932. They also seem to have a certain sniffy attitude when it came to the question of divorce and they seem to have adopted a superior tone there as well. Very much so. And you can see this really a lot in Irish uh, culture at the time, that the attitude towards British tabloids and uh, the cinema, all these things coming out of England, is the idea that morals are much laxer, that people are... uh, not as strict in their religious devotions. And this is perhaps a bit of a misinterpretation because England is still quite a conservative country in the 1930s. And while King Edward is a very, very popular figure, as been mentioned beforehand, there's almost like a Princess Diana quality to him. A lot of people in England um, are very conservative. And this idea of the monarchy having a very sacred role and a very uh, important role in British society. Um, people, a lot of people feel that, as I've been mentioned before, he's really not up to the task. He's not taking it as seriously as his father or his brother would. Adrian, uh, Cahill there mentioned how this was being reported in the newspapers and your most recent book looks at that media war and it is a fascinating story, not just how it was being reported in Britain but also how it was being reported around the world and in the United States, William Randolph Hearst of, of Citizen Kane fame, um, you know, he, he was very keen on Wallace Simpson becoming queen and America having, you know, its own person on the throne and it's interesting the way the story was reported outside of Britain. Absolutely. And Hearst was a commercial journalist. He saw the American Queen as a fantastically good story. Uh, and he was absolutely delighted at the prospect, uh, even when he was told that she'd already been divorced once. Uh, he didn't mind. He was determined to push on with it. Um, he may well have been in touch with Edward uh, in when he was when he was king. It's not it's not absolutely sure, but one thing which is quite pretty certain is that he had Wallace Simpson on the payroll. Exactly how we don't know, but it's something that the British government picked up, so they had the intelligence advantage in that respect. Uh, they didn't like Hearst; they saw him as anti-British. So that was a, another major strike against the Simpsons uh, in the way the government was handling it. Uh, the British press uh, was pretty idolatry of the king. Uh, it was one of the things which helped turn his head. Uh, it gave him a completely deluded idea of what he could get away with. Um, there is an interview that he gave, or a series of interviews he gave, to an American journalist called Frazier Hunt, uh, which do not get the attention they deserve, uh, in which he, in fact, said, I want to rebuild the monarchy's power. I want to rewind some of the constitutional changes. And my big ace in that process is going to be my authority as a celebrity figure, my authority with the press. That is something that the elected politicians cannot argue with. Uh, which I think is one of the things that Baldwin had at least an inkling of and was one of the reasons why he was very dubious as to whether uh, Edward would make a good king. And it's interesting, Edward tried to go directly to the people and broadcast his case, but that was blocked. And it seems that, you know, Edward and his parent, they did have these interesting media strategies, but again, every time they tried to do them, they were either blocked or they were seen as, a, as an attack or a threat. I mean, so certainly, I mean, in, in British constitutional rules, it would have been an appeal to the people over the head of the government, which was quite uh, unacceptable. That said, nobody, not that the constitution was particularly structured, 
uh, ever thought about the monarch's private life as being uh, a matter for a real decision. So going back to the question of how much slack Baldwin actually cut the king, uh, when, the, when it pushed, pushed turn to shove, Baldwin applied the rules as tightly as possible. So um, there was no attempt to get a sense of whether the British public would have accepted the, um, the marriage. And that said, unfortunately, it was before opinion polls or mass observation. Um, so we can't really tell. But I think the best guess is maybe one third of the, the, the population would have accepted a marriage and the rest would, as your, your other speaker was saying, would have applied a very conservative view, which is still very prevalent in society in those days, and would have been very reluctant to have Mrs. Simpson or Wallace as a queen. Okay, well, we're talking history and tonight we are talking about the abdication crisis of 1936. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be investigating the impact of the crisis on Irish politics. And we'll also be finding out about the Dirty Tricks campaign against the King and Wallace Simpson. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are talking about the abdication crisis. I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel of experts, Adrian Phillips, historian and author and author of The King Who Had to Go, as well as The the First Royal Media War. Emily Harrigan, the author of The Other Guinness Girl, A Question of Honour, as well as the whole series on the glorious Guinness Girls. And Cahill Brennan, the co-presenter of the Irish History Story podcast and the author of a brilliant article on the abdication crisis and its impact on Ireland on the Irish Story website. And Carl, let's talk about the article and let's talk about the impact that this had on Ireland, because as you said earlier, it really was an opportunity to take the king and the monarchy out of the constitution. It was a really an opportunity to make England's difficulty Ireland's opportunity. Well, that's true. And one of the reasons why this opportunity presents itself is the evolution in the relationship between the Dominions and the Imperial Parliament in Westminster. And in 1926, there was the Imperial Conference. That's where all the different dominions meet to discuss issues. And we had the Balfour Declaration. And that leads to the Statute of Westminster in 1931. Now, this would have been when Cumann and Nail were in power. Now, the interesting thing about the Statute of Westminster is it establishes legislative equality between London and all the dominion parliaments. And one of the things in the Statute of Westminster within the preamble, it says that any alteration in the law touching the succession to the throne requires the assent of all the Dominion uh, parliaments. And that would also require their cooperation with legislation covering uh, what people couldn't predict at the time, but issues regarding the succession and a possible abdication. So in this period in Irish history, in Anglo-Irish relations, it's very complicated, and it usually is very complicated. But the relationship is very poor, because since uh, Fianna Fáil and de Valera have been elected in 1932, one of the issues that Fianna Fáil run on is dismantling the treaty. Now, it's only 15 years since the treaty has been signed, and the civil war, and everything like that. So um, it's a very live issue, and a lot of the people involved in this period had been involved back then as well. So when the abdication crisis presents itself, it really is an opportunity to do some of the things that de Valera had really hoped for. And one of those was to bring in a new constitution. Because during this period uh, of Fianna Fáil in office, only four years, we got rid of the oath. And that was one of the parts uh, that people have found most objectionable during the treaty negotiations and civil war that uh, members of the Oireachtas would have to take uh, an oath of allegiance or fidelity to the Crown and also the role of Governor-General. And that's the King's representative in the Dominion. 
So uh, this is one of the things that, that you see similarities in constitutions between all the different dominions. So when Fianna Fáil get in to remove the oath, they reduced the Governor-General position to pretty much a nullity. Uh, the previous Governor-General resigns and a, a Fianna Fáil loyalist, Donald Bukla, is appointed. And also as well, one of the, the things that in, works in De Valera's favour is that the Senate has been abolished as well. And the Senate was viewed as a very conservative bulwark that was sort of stopping a lot of the things that De Valera wanted to do. So he only really had to rely on the Dáil. And after the second general election in 1933, where Fianna Fáil got a, an overall majority, because they didn't have an overall majority in 1932, if he can pass things in the, the Dáil, he doesn't have to require, uh, depend on the Senate passing as well, because the Senate doesn't exist. And it's fascinating the way this then accelerates all of de Valera's plans and that it's able to help him pass legislation, removing elements to do with the Crown and it helps him speed up his plans for the Constitution then. And of course, you have the new Constitution coming, Bodenrock Naharan in 1937, that, that this is a golden opportunity for de Valera. Absolutely. And in some ways, it would have been better if the abdication would have happened three or four months later because they're in the process of preparing the uh, Constitution. So you can see this in the documents in the Irish Foreign Policy series, which is just a fascinating treasure trove of information. You can see the uh, correspondence between the British government and the Dáil and de Valera regarding the potential for this application. So it's really only, and the 29th of November, when Sir Harry Batterby, who's the Assistant Secretary of the Dominion Office, is contacting um, de Valera. So everything happens in a very, very short time period. And along with de Valera, all the other Dominion Prime Ministers are informed of the situation, but also the fact that there may be three options going forward regarding the monarchy. And the first one was that Edward would marry Wallace Simpson and she would become Queen which is obviously something that Baldwin and the British government did not want. The second one, and this uh, term pops up, uh, morganatic relationship, meaning that Edward would marry Wallace Simpson, but the act of succession would be altered so that their children wouldn't become uh, in line to the throne if they were to have any children. And also she wouldn't have a, uh, a Royal Highness designation and then the third option would be the abdication. And the British government are uh, trying to find out what the views of the different dominions are. And this is where de Valera says, well, go for option two, the morganatic relationship. And isn't divorce a recognised institution in England? What's the big deal? Um, and he favoured second option. We can see within the dominion that there's a lot of shock regarding this because the connection that the dominions, the other dominions have towards Britain and their relationship with the crown, um, there's no huge republican movements in these countries to remove the link to the British crown, whereas there's a completely different situation in the Irish Free State. It's a very reluctant relationship with the crown, and uh, a lot of the constitutional changes that de Valera are bringing in regarding the oath and the Governor-General, removing the right of our citizens to appeal to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. They're all things that directly impact on the Crown and the Crown's relationship with Ireland. It's also fascinating to see what they thought of Winston Churchill and they were incredibly scathing in some of these diplomatic letters and reports going back and forth and their view of him was that he was a a really opportunistic scoundrel and they even went all the way back in his in his family tree to some like great 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 grandfather and thought that person was a scoundrel as well and therefore this was like almost like a family inherited trait. Yes, it's, it's incredibly funny reading back about it the uh, correspondence between Walsh and de Valera. And Walsh, as he says, absolutely scathing. He's going back to uh, the English Civil War and the Duke of York. And um, uh, the, the view that, um, as Adrian was saying there before, that Churchill is very much in the wilderness from being such a prominent figure. 
uh, in British politics, that this is his opportunity to get his way back to the centre of British politics. Uh, by, and they view it as that he could become uh, the king's man, the most important advisor. And if he takes the king's side, this could elevate him to the top of British politics. Uh, and also, the relationship that Churchill had had with Ireland in the, in the past. So there was no great love for Churchill. And I have to remember at the time as well, regarding Anglo-Irish politics, that the economic war is going on. And Churchill is one of the most vociferous critics of Ireland unilaterally changing the treaty and getting rid of things like the oath, that this is a great abrogation of the Anglo-Irish treaty. So uh, there's not a very good relationship between Churchill and de Valera at this period. Adrian, your book, The King Who Had to Go, details the really quite extraordinary lengths the establishment and the government went to to try and and stop what was happening. And it included bugging, tapping the phone lines of the king. Uh, it included uh, producing all of these false reports about Wallace Simpson. And there really was a huge amount of you know dirty tricks and manipulation to try and, and guide and shape what was happening. If you wind back to the very beginning of the relationship between Edward and Wallace, the fear in the British establishment uh, was that the Simpsons were just common or garden blackmailers who would use the the relationship to milk money out of the royal family, out of the British state, which is why the police special branch was set onto them in 1935. Uh, which rather helps to explain why the establishment was so down on Mrs. Simpson. It wasn't merely the hard fact of the divorces, but she was regarded as a quasi-prostitute. It's it's as harsh as that. Um, So there was no moral qualm at all about uh, smearing her. the actual details of the smear campaign are pretty pretty well hidden, uh, and it's not known how much was coming from the government side and how much was coming from the court side. But I mean, very soon after the abdication had gone through, the story is, is being spread that um, Miss, whilst she was living in China, Mrs. Simpson had had a Chinese lover, which by the standards, the very hypocritical standards of the time, would have been extremely scandalous. Um, and other parts of the story were also being leaked out. One of the stories that the special branch had uncovered, that she had... Uh, another lover, as well as the um, the king or the Prince of Wales, uh, Guy Trundle, the motor salesman, was also being uh, leaked out. Uh, in particular, to Joseph Kennedy, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Britain, uh, who was who might just have been tempted to represent the the pressure on the the king not to to marry as an anti-American move uh, what he was being discreetly said was the stories, well she wasn't actually just as an an American she was also a morally very very compromised individual And there were also later stories that Wallace was a a Nazi spy or certainly a Nazi sympathiser and I wonder what do you make of the, the Nazi connections that they visited Hitler in 1937 after the whole thing had had come to a head. Was it was it just really that this was someone who could offer them a route back to the throne, and and that's why they were taken in by Hitler, or was there a was there a real element of support there? Well, even going back to the start of his reign, uh, Edward showed how close he was to the Germans. Um, one of his 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 cousins, who is the Duke of Saxe Coburg Gotha, who was a very enthusiastic Nazi, was over for his father's funeral, and was talking to talking to Edward, and uh, there was some discussion about a, a visit to Hitler, um, and whether Baldwin would improve. And Edward said said, said to the Duke, "Well, uh, who's the king here? I am the king. Uh, Baldwin will basically do what I tell him." Uh, so. 
there was an authoritarian attitude to, towards Germany that was already present at the start of the reign. After the abdication, I think it was probably more important that uh, as Mr. Simpson or the Duchess of Windsor was being treated as a pariah, any significant recognition of, of her as uh, a figure of standing was was vitally desirable to certainly to Edward, which I think is much more the motive of his visit to to Germany in 1937 than any sort of a return to to the throne. Emily, it's impossible not to think of Harry and Meghan when we talk about uh, this crisis, even though the circumstances and the case very different and, you know, Harry wasn't the king and so on. But there are superficial similarities, you know, a royal figure wanting to marry a divorced American woman. But then there are deeper, you know, connections in terms of the way the media portrayed the characters, you know, Harry was liked, Meghan not, and so on, and uh, the way it did end up in in the figures going into exile in both cases. Yes, definitely. And I think it's something that Harry was really aware of. I mean, I do think that abdication plays through again and again. I think if you look at Princess Margaret wanting to marry her divorced group captain Peter Townsend, that didn't happen. And, you know, partly the reason that it didn't happen was because the, you know, the reigning monarch at the time, Elizabeth, was very much, we can't go there. We have history, you know, we have form in this regard. We're absolutely not doing it. So it is something that they're hyper aware of. And I definitely think, I mean, I know the newspapers are producing all sorts of, you know, parallel photos. Wallace with her hair parted in the centre wearing coat X and Meghan with the same hairstyle and a similar coat. I mean, they're definitely camping it up. But I think that Harry was just about smart enough to realise that it is a really complex story, right? Is this a story of a love affair? You know, is this a principal king who refuses to you know, shoulder the heavy burden without the woman he loves by his side? Is it something different? Is it a clash between old and new within the British establishment? All of those ideas of Nazi Germany also percolate through. The FBI certainly believed, I mean, they were feeding Roosevelt the line, that the antagonism towards Wallace was based around the fact that she had Nazi sympathies. She was apparently involved in an affair with von Ribbentrop, the 17 Carnations, There's this rumour that, I mean, he sent her 17 red carnations every morning. The rumour being that this was to represent the number of times that they'd slept together, which sounds totally bogus. But, you know, there is definitely so, like, the abdication brings all of these things into play and it is complicated. And, you know, the why exactly, there is no one why. There are various whys. But one of them is the love story. And it's the love story that Harry is signalling. You know, when he was kind of talking about you know, having to kind of choose love over duty, he is definitely throwing a little arrow, throwing a lure out there and reminding people, because there is still a sense of romance. For the people who, you know, see nothing other than a love story, they see a king who took a stand against the grey men of Westminster and Buckingham Palace who refused to kowtow and knuckle down and be the bloodless creature that they wanted him to be. And that's quite a potent narrative. Do you know? I mean, it's, it's, does it stand up to scrutiny? Ish, maybe. But it is a very potent narrative and it is definitely one that Harry is using to his advantage. He is positioning himself as, I am the one who followed my heart. You know, I am a person of principle. I am a person of strong passions. And that makes him very appealing because the family are kind of, you know, throwing out the narrative that he's a wimp and he's a coward and he shirked his duty, um, you know, and he ran away, basically. So they are also invoking the same spirit of this abdicated king, but they are invoking the scoundrel side of him, you know, the side of him that did not step up to the mark, you know, that kind of was called upon and found wanting because he was too childish and self-indulgent to do the job that was expected of him. That's the family's narrative. Harry's narrative is no, like Edward, you know, I am somebody who chooses love over everything else. And I think we probably prefer the love narrative to the duty one generally. And it's fascinating the way the abdication crisis has become such a fertile source for filmmakers, for for novelists like yourself, for uh, for playwrights, for people doing The Crown and so on. It's because... 
it's because you could tell the story many different ways. You yes. can make George the hero. You can yeah. make Wallace Simpson the hero. You can you can make you can make anyone the hero, or indeed anyone the villain. Yeah. And 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 you can and you can kind of invent and recreate it whatever way you want. Absolutely. I mean, there is at the heart of it, there is this unknowing. There is this absolute kernel of why did he do this, and into that. We pour all our speculation and our theories and all of them work. And as you say, you can position anyone as the hero and the villain in this story and you can swap them around within the space of a couple of months. I mean, you know, Edward can almost look like the hero at the point at which he leaves. But then when you look at the reality of what happened later, so the historical reality of war with Germany and how that was and the years of the Blitz in London and the incredibly kind of, you know, this this kind of wonderful force for good that King George was and Elizabeth. And, you know, they remained in Buckingham Palace and the palace was bombed and they were like the people of the East End and they were giving hope to everyone. And you kind of think, OK, that really worked out. If you had had Edward and Wallace there, it's hard to imagine. It's really difficult to see that they would have become anything like the totemic figures that the king and queen were during the war. So you kind of go, well, thank God it wasn't them. I mean, quite apart from the sympathies with Germany, which would presumably have evaporated once war was declared. You know, I mean, again, you speculate because you don't know. But even if the sympathy with Germany had completely evaporated and they had been much more loyal to England, they could never, one thinks, have been you know, the kind of quiet, solid, reliable figures that the king and queen were. So, you know, history gives its own interpretation of who the hero and the villain is at any one stage. But it is, I mean, it is completely fascinating. We've just done an hour nearly, and I'd say that there's loads more. We could probably do a second hour easily. Well, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be assessing the legacy of the abdication. Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the abdication crisis of 1936. I'm rejoined by Adrian Phillips, the author of the brilliant books The King Who Had to Go, Edward VIII, Mrs. Simpson and the Hidden Politics of the Abdication Crisis, as well as the most recent The First Royal Media War, Edward VIII, The Abdication and the Press. Emily Harrigan, the author of the wonderful Glorious Guinness Girl series, which includes The Other Guinness Girl, A Question of Honour, which is set during the period of the abdication crisis. And Cahill Brennan, the co-presenter of the Irish History Story podcast. Adrian, how would you sum up the legacy of the abdication crisis? It leads to, of course, a change in monarch. I suppose it leads to a change in attitudes or certainly a a return to that sense of duty being the guiding principle and force of the monarchy. Well, to pick up Emily's point, I'm pretty sure that uh, Queen Elizabeth would have been more tolerant towards uh, her, her sister but for the fact that uh, 20, actually less than 20 years before, uh, Britain had lost the king precisely because of this uh, point of morality. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, perhaps the more important thing is that uh, he broke, or the abdication crisis broke, the 100 years truce between the, the British press uh, and the monarchy. Uh, when you look at what was happening before Victoria, uh, vitriol is not in it. There was a venomous relationship. Uh, but anyhow, uh, with the, the the abdication, I won't say that the floodgates were open, but the the hard rule of silence disappeared. With the war, that, of course, was kept going. But after that, things went pretty remorselessly downhill. 
And of course, the big steps in this was the Duke of Windsor presenting his own side of the abdication story uh, in his uh, memoir, his autobiography, A King's Story. Um, And it continued bubbling beneath the surface uh, until finally, in terms of the abdication, the royal family, in effect, presented its own version uh, in Michael Thornton's Royal Feud, which was completely signed off by the Queen Mother, or rather, where the access that was necessary for it was signed off by the Queen Mother. So uh, to pick up the Harry and Meghan story, uh, the royal family fighting out its feuds through the public presses is absolutely nothing new, and it was the, the abdication that started it. Although I suppose in the end, given that Edward and Wallace Simpson didn't have any children of their own, the the throne would have ultimately gone to Queen Elizabeth or Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth in the end. It probably might have been just 20 years later than she actually succeeded to the throne. Yes, uh, her, her husband would have had a bigger career in the Royal Navy uh, and she might have... Uh, come to the throne with slightly different attitudes. She might have observed society changing. She might have been less of a figure for conservatism. We don't, we don't know. Um, the, the big question, though, is what would he have been like as a king? Uh, I, would, I would probably agree that, yes, he would uh, have lost his pro-Germanism at the start of the Second World War. Um, and Wallace might have learnt the business of being, being a queen properly. Uh, though it must be said, the one figure who said that she would have made a very good queen was no, none other than Adolf Hitler. Um, certainly the abdication changed uh, changed things enormously. Um, and the monarchy of Elizabeth II was very certainly shaped by the abdication. There's no argument about that. And, well, we are just now coming to terms of a life we're in Britain without Queen Elizabeth II. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Adrian Phillips, author and historian, Emily Harrigan, journalist and writer, whose books include the series On the Glorious Guinness Girls and Cahill Brennan, the co-presenter of the Irish History Story podcast. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Aoife Breen, who produced the show tonight, my series producer, Marais O'Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Our Octoroyan, Argus. Akoiza.